Hey nerds, welcome to episode 439 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. Uh, Just Adam today for this episode, Uh, and this is one that um, I'm really, really excited for. This is definitely one of the more important books in my personal history, and I think the country, the United States' country, uh, if you're listening to uh, this in the States, you know, and and the United States' history, uh, I think this is one of the more important episodes we're going to do. Um, this is a conversation I had with author Deborah Wiles about her book, Kent State. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, um, this year on May 4th is the 50th anniversary of um, the shootings that took place at Kent State, uh, where several students died and several others were injured. Um, it was basically when the National Guard opened fire on uh, students on the campus of Kent State. Um, I mentioned this is very close to my personal history. My parents uh, were both on campus at the time. They both were Kent State uh, students. I also have two sisters who went to Kent State, uh, as well as several aunts and uncles and, and cousins. And Kent State is very much wrapped up in the, in the history of my family. So this was a really important conversation for me. Um, the The book tries to tell everyone's side of the story, and she does it in such a unique way. Um, we've been talking a lot about non-traditional books lately on the podcast, and, and this is definitely a non-traditionally formatted book, and you really need to, um, to read it to understand. But we do get into uh, a lot of the different layers and all the research that she did to put this book together. It's, it's beautiful, and... Uh, it, if you were to say the National Guard killed several students on Kent State's uh, campus on May 4th, 1970, you would be right. But there's so many layers to the story, and she does just a, a brilliant job trying to unpack some of those layers. Uh, I won't lie, this conversation gets a little bit heavy, but it's more so in getting into the, like, the nitty-gritty details about what happened uh, on not just May 4th, but the days leading up to it. Um, I asked my parents before I did this interview about what they remembered and how it aligned with the book. And, uh, so we, we get into a lot of those, those nitty gritty details. I won't lie. Deborah and I, uh, shared a cry afterwards just because of this unique connection. Um, it's just a really, really great story. And one of the things that, um, you know, the coronavirus and the stay at home situation we all have is affecting is there is supposed to be a, a huge, uh, remembrance at Kent State this year is to not say celebrate the 50th anniversary, but more so remember uh, the people that have been lost. And um, that's something that, that can't take place now, at least not in person. So just another one of those, those challenging moments in our, uh, in our life. So this is very much a, um, a conversation about a moment in history for our country when we're all around the world experiencing a moment in history that people will probably talk about for years and years. So I really think you guys will like this. And I know I'm going on a little bit longer here uh, in an intro than I normally would, but it's just, it's such an important book. And I really hope you guys will take a listen to the conversation and then, and then go get this book. It's, it's out and it's available now. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always find us on Instagram at Twitter at ProBookNerds. We've been trying to interact with uh, followers as much as possible there just to kind of give you guys some bookish fun to, to take you know take your mind off of some things. Uh, you can also email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. 
Uh, we are answering any emails, any questions you guys might have. Uh, definitely be paying attention to our social media. We're going to announce a really, really fun kind of live stream thing that we're going to do this week with some other nerdy friends that you guys may recognize. Uh, so we'll be announcing that very, very shortly. Um, yeah, you can go to professionalbooknerds.com to find all of our old episodes and our archives. Uh, I've been trying to share some of our archived episodes uh, over the past uh, couple weeks just to give people stuff to do. Again, just try to keep you entertained a little bit. Um, I think that's just about everything. Uh, if you want to get some Libby swag, you can go to shop.overdrive.com. We've got hoodies and t-shirts and stickers and all sorts of fun stuff. We're going to add some professional book nerd stuff there in a little bit, I think. Um, and then definitely be sure to just subscribe to the podcast if, if you're not already. On Thursday, our episode will be all about uh, May's upcoming books that we're really, really excited about because impossibly we are moving on to another month. So I think that's just about everything. I'm not going to keep you guys anymore. I'm really, really excited for you to hear this conversation. Uh, just a, a quick note about it. We did record this uh, way back in February, I think. Uh, so obviously no mention of the coronavirus or COVID or anything like that. Um, and then if you see us on, on social media and you see a picture of, of the author and me being close to each other, it is because it was months and months ago. So Okay, not going to keep you guys any longer. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Deborah Wiles on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Adam. I am hanging out at the American Library Association in... Philadelphia is where I'm at for a moment. I am so excited to be sitting down with Deborah Wiles, who is a two-time National Book Award finalist, whose work has won countless awards for her writing about growing up in the South, as well as several books about the 60s. She's written a new book to honor the 50th anniversary of a truly horrific event that hits very close to home for me personally, the killing of four students and wounding of several others at Kent State in 1970. The book is simply titled Kent State, but there is much, much more than just a simple title. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So I, I mentioned that you know it's, it took place 50 years ago, and we have we were fortunate. We have a lot of young listeners, so they might not really know mm-hmm. what happened 50 years ago. So can you kind of kick us off by introducing our listeners in case they're unaware of exactly what happened 50 years yes. ago in Kent? In 1970, we were several years already into the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and it was an unpopular war, and on, um, I think it was April 30th, uh, President Nixon announced that he was invading Cambodia. Mm-hmm. We, the U.S., were yeah. invading Cambodia as part of the campaign to get this war over with. Right. And kids on college campuses especially all revolted. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were draft eligible because draft rules had changed. Yeah. And, and the war was just, it was never ending. And so many had, many, many tens of thousands had already died. So students on college campuses across the country came out in force Mm -hmm. and began to protest. And in Kent, Ohio, at Kent State University, those protests were met with the National Guard coming onto campus. They were called by the mayor who called the governor who called in the guard. He wanted a show of strength. Right. And the guard occupied the campus for three days. 
and escalating tensions led to May 4, 1970, when the Guard opened fire on protesting students, including some just walking to class, yeah. killed four, wounded nine more, and changed the world, basically. It was the end of the 60s. Yeah, and um, I mentioned in the, the intro, and I feel like I'm gonna bounce around because- It's okay, um, I will too. Yeah, I was, so I, I told you before we started recording, both of my parents attended Kent State, were on campus when this happened. They were students at the time, and they were coming, they were walking back from class when this all happened. Um, they didn't know each other at the time, but they both thankfully were not at the actual rally when, when all this happened. But um, I remember there's so many things that my, my parents were told me about that are like these ancillary things. Like my dad, for whatever reason, all these years later, 50 years later, remembers, um, I think it was Saturday night, he was just eating an apple on uh, like the front of one of his, uh, of his dorm. And the National Guard was marching. Yep. And one of the National Guard people who my dad remembers like was younger than he was yep. says, get back in your dorm. And he's like, I'm not doing anything. And he pointed a gun directly at my dad and said, get back inside. And so my dad said, okay. But it was what struck him was he told me, he's like, I don't remember why I remember eating an apple. And it's like one of those moments yeah. in time. But um, you don't forget it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's pivotal. It's just. And you mentioned the, the draft. Like, he told me, he had a lot of friends who, when they saw that their number for the draft yep. was, like, low, low, it was, wasn't going to be, it was, like, in the 300s, um, they just dropped out of school because they knew they weren't going to get drafted. Like the only reason they had gone to school was so that they... To avoid the draft. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of students went to school to mm -hmm. avoid the draft back then. And the, the draft lottery system had been set up in 1969 in December. Yeah. So it was just then that suddenly every man got a number. Yeah. Everyone over 18 had a, a lottery number. And if it was low, you were going. Yeah. You know? Uh, something I, I want to, before we get too like into the weeds of what my parents were doing at the time is I do want I don't mind that at all. No, I know, but I do <laughs> and I want, bet listeners don't. I'm sure, but I do want to talk about the structure of the book okay. because it's when we talk about the fact that it's a rehashing of everything that happened during that weekend, you do it in this such a unique way and I kind of want you to describe how because it's so beautiful and moving and it's like all mm -hmm. it's all encompassing really of like what happened. So, can you walk us through yes. how it's laid out well first of all let me say um, I have memories just like your parents mm -hmm. do that the shooting at Kent State happened three days before my 17th birthday wow. so I was a 16 year old junior in high school and lived in Charleston South Carolina and this just blew us all out of the water we yeah. just could not believe how could this happen in America mm -hmm. and it has always, always, always stayed with me. Yeah. So I knew as I was writing the 60s trilogy of books mm -hmm. that I just finished that, and I kept coming up against Kent State as I did research, right. and I thought, I have to write about this. It still stays with me. Mm -hmm. It still feels so unbelievable. Yeah. So I began to purposely research Kent State. And when I did, and I went there, mm -hmm. and I did a bunch of research um, in archives, and the visitor center folks were really great to me. They connected me with survivors and other people. And as I began to talk with all them and research, I realized that there's more than one story here. Yeah. There's student stories. There's black student stories. Yeah. There's the National Guard stories. There are the townspeople stories. Mm -hmm. There are so many, administration, faculty, there's so many stories. 
Who's got the truth? Yeah. So that's what led to this structure of having different voices tell the story back and forth in a conversation right. so they can argue with one another about what the truth is. They each have different memories. Mm -hmm. What is, uh, it's told from the collective memory mm -hmm. of all those people. Well, and there's there's something, so when you mentioned that there's town townspeople from Kent, from yeah. Kent. I always want to like, just call the town Kent yeah. State, but it's Kent. Uh, there's townspeople who are very calm and understand yeah. the facts, and then there's these shouting, angry ones. And there's a part in here where people will read it, and they will, they might not even believe it, because there's a yep. part in all caps where the angry people say they should have killed yep. more of you. And before, because my parents have both read the advanced copy of the yeah. book, because they, they actually like took it from me before I could even get a chance to <laughs> My dad has told me many times, um, after this all happened, he went back to his home in Cleveland for the summer, and he worked at um, a chemical plant where my grandfather was a uh, foreman. And he, my dad had the long ponytail, and like, he was very much a hippie. And he told me, he's like, they, these other workers at the plant flat out told me they should have killed more of you. Yep. And so when people think of what happened, they, there's of course the, the common sense side of us who are all like, this is horrible, but there are still people who think like the students had no right to do what they were doing. There are still people who think that and believe that. I've met some of them since the galley's been published. But you know, the, that's a direct quote from letters that yeah. were sent to the newspaper. And so I'm not surprised your dad heard that, too, mm -hmm. because this was a conservative town mm -hmm. and a conservative country in a lot of ways. Yeah. And people didn't want you to be out there protesting. Young people were supposed to behave. Right. And I think that's the big difference between then and now mm -hmm. is that now we see protest as absolutely necessary. Yeah. And the thing that it's having had so many conversations like I said not only did my parents go there but I have aunts and uncles who went to Kent State <laughs> at the same time I feel like my entire life is swimming around Kent State I, two of my siblings went there I love that my um my cousin went on a full ride to play football they like there's so many actually growing up we would meet in Kent at um like the Robin Hood and yeah, stuff yeah the Robin it's in here uh, yep yeah, absolutely it's so, it's so weird like I recognize so many of these places. I mentioned I, I grew up in Lorraine one of yeah, the victims yeah. from Lorraine like all of this is like circled around our life but um, I just remember like, them constantly talking about understanding the National Guard, like making a mistake. Like people who are involved, they can understand. They can't understand why the government would have the National Guard there. Yeah. But the National Guard people were 18, 19, 20 years old. They were people who joined the National Guard. Yep to not go over to That's Vietnam. exactly right. Not all of them. Right. I mean, some were adults that were rubber plant workers and auto workers, uh, farmers. Right. But there was a significant number, and some who were on campus that day who were actually students yeah. at Kent State and also part of the National Guard, so they wouldn't have to go to Vietnam. Exactly. And here they were in helmets and guns and mm -hmm. rifles and bayonets and soldier materials standing there. Yeah. And and that's what, like I said, that's why it would always shock me is my my mom and dad has, have told me they're like it they shouldn't have fired their guns and they no one will ever know why the first person started shooting and then it got out yeah. of hand but like they said like they were sleep deprived they were coming from right. a different like they they were outnumbered like there's a lot of things they were truly outnumbered yeah. i mean outnumbered by thousands mm -hmm. But, and, and they were scared and they were sleep deprived. It doesn't, it doesn't make it right, right, what they did. But there's somebody who needed to be in charge who gave an order to fire or mm -hmm. didn't. Who knows? We're never going to know. There's arguing, arguing, which is why the book presents all those different sides. Right. But 
it doesn't make it right. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that your parents can see that side. Yeah, and I mean, they are obviously being so close to it, but they, I've heard them say, like, in moments of calm, they're like, they were scared kids just as much as we were. And maybe it had something to do with, again, like, my parents both seeing them with guns, being pointed at them, and seeing these faces that were their age. It's... It is. Well, it's, it's complicated. It is it's very complicated, and it's very simple. And the the um, bus students, Black United students, they right. were called. Um, they, there was an organization on campus called Bus for Black students to gather and to get together to lobby the uh, administration for classes mm -hmm. and different things that they wanted as well on campus and representation. Yeah. And they knew that those guns had bullets in them. Yeah. They knew. And, and more than one of them said to me, you see a man standing there with a rifle and you don't think it's got bullets in it? Yeah. But somehow these white kids didn't even, it didn't even occur to them. But yeah. Bus told black kids, do not go. Yeah. You know, there are men with gun rifles and bullets mm -hmm. and do not go. Well, and not only that, I think there's a, there's a common misconception for people who think about this event that do maybe just like the base amount of research and say, oh, there were thousands of students protesting. But there were also other factions yeah. of people protesting who like, they basically sent people to kind of raise like the student you know, student democratic oh sds yeah yeah i don't know that the sds and weathermen were actually on campus any that didn't belong there i don't mm -hmm. know that I, I don't think it's been proven yeah uh but there that's a definitely a theory and it's definitely a fact for some people mm -hmm. that the sds was fomenting all yeah. this you know saying come on get them get them right. get them yeah so there was all that too and there was so much anger there was just so much anger and not just about the war but how dare you be on our campus uh -huh. how dare you occupy our campus yeah. but the governor was the person not the college the yeah. governor said come on mm -hmm. um while doing your what i can only imagine was exhaustive research <laughs> it was amazing research too. what I um, loved it. what surprised you most that was there anything that stood out that you weren't aware of or you know I, as I said I was 16 when yeah. this happened so I thought I knew about Kent State mm -hmm. but as I started to research I discovered that not only were there so many opinions and stories but there were three days mm -hmm. of this I didn't know that I yeah. just assumed they came on campus and there was a shooting because I had not understood that there were, they came on campus on a Friday night, mm -hmm. the National Guard or the uh, ROTC building was burned down, maybe by students, maybe not. The next night, everybody was tear gas. There were helicopters at night. Mm -hmm. There were um, guards bayoneting kids. There were, I yeah. mean, all this was going on that I didn't know about. So right. that really surprised me. Yeah. And also just to know where Kent was. Because yeah. I had not, I knew Kent, but right. I had not been there. So going there three times to do research was just like amazing to land in Cleveland, to get in a car, to go yeah. all the way. And to see Kent uh -huh. was such a surprising thing. It's, uh, and you mentioned it being uh, such a conservative kind of area at the time. Like there's a street called Charing Cross's Road. Like there, Really? Yeah. It's a, it, and <laughs> like, now it's not, you know, it's nowhere near, yeah, it's very strange. I can't, I remember, that always stuck with me when I was a kid. Like yeah. we would go to like Rockney's or Robin Hood. I remember yeah. being like, that is a bad name for a street. But um, I will say, I my dad is quick to point out, and you pointed out in here as well, but um, you mentioned the ROTC building getting burned down. My dad is quick to point out, he's like, it was condemned to yep. be knocked down yep. anyway. And he, he says, he's like, I have no idea who started that fire. No he's one like, does. But he's like, the locals 
said that we were arsonists causing fires, plural, and he's like, there was one fire started and it was a building that was not occupied and it was condemned. He literally said, he's like, it was a shed, basically. Yeah. And, yeah, he, that's, it's so funny the things that yeah. he gets... But they made it into such a bigger thing. But you're right. I mean, and, and it was like the quote-unquote principle of the thing. Sure. You know, you're, you don't destroy public or uh, private property. Mm-hmm. And public property, actually, because it was a public campus. But, um, yeah, that surprised me, too. I didn't know that that all was going on. And when I say conservative, I don't mean that everyone was. Because as I also say in the book, they, the kids were reading Mao and Lenin and right. Marx. And there were people who... And Jerry Rubin was coming to campus. Yeah. And people were coming to... That actually lifted up minds mm-hmm. and actually gave you know, kids. Kids were pretty savvy, but their parents were pretty conservative for the most part. Yeah, and I think it also is. It was such a, a different time in the sense that, like now, our country is so divided. Yeah. You're either. I mean, and I'm admittedly the same way. I I am a, like a Democrat, and like if I meet someone who is a conservative, even if they are kind and nice to me, I immediately have that thought where I'm like, oh. But I don't. We disagree at a at a core cellular level, and there's nothing we can do about that. Whereas back then, like you said, that people there were, it was much more gray. Like I, there'd be elections where people actually wanted to hear what both sides had to say before yeah. they made their decision. Not it was so much, much more bipartisan in that way. Although I will say that Nixon really divided the country, super right. divided the country, and you've seen that with George Bush um, and the Iraq War that divided the country and in, in the current political landscape we live in we have a very divided political yes. spectrum um, but you know what we do have that's different mm-hmm. what we had then was you know you, you young people you behave mm-hmm. and anything stepping out of line like your dad with the ponytail you yeah. know or um, or, or protesting you know, uh-huh. that was not allowed that was you were seen as a bad person whereas right. now even though we're divided we see so much more of that out there mm-hmm. carrying on democracy and making freedom of speech real mm-hmm. making the first amendment real because at heart this book is a lot about that too yeah. the way that we have um, squashed first amendment rights mm-hmm. so i'm curious i you've written you know biographical books and this isn't <laughs> your first book but the f- structure of this is mm-hmm. so different it's almost like prose or it's, it's almost like poetry sort of the way that it's like did it feel more challenging putting this story together it was so much more challenging in the beginning because I could not figure out a structure for this book mm-hmm. so I worked with my editor David Levithan at mm-hmm. Scholastic we had several conversations about this book and both of us it turns out had read and I actually listened to it on Overdrive, <laughs> Lincoln in the Bardo by George Sanders. Oh my gosh, yeah. And that book blew me over, and I had I couldn't get it out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And when one of us mentioned it, the other one went, yes! Yeah. And so I started, and of course I hadn't seen Lincoln in the Bardo in print, because I listened to it as an audiobook on right. Overdrive. So I had that book in my mind, and I heard those voices in Kent State like that. Let's, yeah. This person talks, then that person talks, then the other person, and suddenly it just began mm-hmm. coming. And once it began coming, my job was to capture it. I just kept on and kept yeah. on, and it wrote itself. Not It didn't take so long to write it as uh-huh. it did to just agonize over how to structure it. How oh, do I tell man. this story? So isn't literature amazing like that? That's I mean, amazing. you have a key that comes to you just from being a literate person. You're somebody who listens to uh-huh. stories and reads stories. So that's what helped me. We um, we got to interview him over the phone. Oh, I'm so... It was delightful. And it was so funny because obviously he's George Saunders. He's like one of 
yeah. Times, you know, top Amazing. 100 most influential people in the world. And we asked him, because this, this was, that was his first novel. Everything else were collections yeah, of short stories. stories. And he told us, I will never forget. This was such a sentence of humility. He was, I was like, what took you so long to write a novel? I was joking with him. He said, well, I didn't feel I was ready to write a story yet like this. It's like, you're George Saunders. If anyone can write a story, it's you. But I asked him the same thing. I was like, all of these different characters. Yeah, what did he And say? I was like, how did you put that together? And he's like, honestly, that's how I heard the story in my yeah, mind. Yeah, and that's, that's so smart. Yeah. Well, he gave me a gift. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's amazing. He doesn't know it, but yeah. he did. <laughs> so uh, your story ends with May 4th, the, yeah. the actual day of everything shooting. Um, my parents wanted me to talk to you about the aftermath. Okay. Because what they remember about afterwards, so there was a shooting, four deaths, nine wounded. And then what happened afterwards was the school told all the students you have to get off campus right now like within hours they had to leave yeah they had to leave they weren't allowed to go back to their rooms to collect anything right um well you you know your history this is excellent yeah i I really like oh i like i said i grew up with this as a story they weren't allowed to collect anything and what my both my parents talked about is um my father had a car at the time and he and his girlfriend at the time they were able to get off campus and i had a aunt who was living in akron so they went down there and then got her a flight to Dayton. My mother was dating someone. She was from Lorraine, Ohio. She didn't have a way. So they had to get off campus, try to find a landline because there was no, there was right, no way of contacting exactly. anyone. Yes. And so and phones were down. Right. And they eventually got a landline called and my mom got a ride back to Lorraine. And my parents both said, they're like, this was us having a little bit of issues with just the two of us. That's thousands and thousands of students just being removed and saying, right. figure it out. And then they were told, okay, you can come back at this time to collect your things. Right. But they finished their classes um, using, like, cable access television. Yeah, a lot of people never even finished. And some, some professors just gave grades. Yeah. And some failed students. Mm-hmm. But, yes, it was done correspondence course. You right. Know? <laughs> it was just, like, really. Well, and, like, now I think about the fact where if something major happens in our world, something horrible, you can contact your family using a cell phone you can go to twitter and you can find out what's happening you can interact with people my dad said he's like we there was no way for us to know anything until the rest of the world did and he's like and it was just such a this like shell-shocked feeling it was i'm sure it was and and oral histories i i read a lot and listened to a lot of there's a may 4th oral history program and i listened to many 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 of those and student mm-hmm. after student was saying so were townspeople because they didn't know what had happened either right because there wasn't news on campus on campus to mm-hmm. tell them but um yeah that was that was, you know today you would have people coming into council and you would have all kinds right. of other uh, uh supports uh-huh. that you could bring in but just shutting the school down like mm-hmm. that was crazy they didn't know what to do it, yeah. it had never happened before and yeah. it was it was a, an emergency. And yeah. I just said, go home. Go exactly. home right now. Go right. home. And that was when my dad said, he's like, I went home, and then I went to work with my grandfather, oh, his father. Have been, I, how could he even stand it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he, he said, and my dad is, uh, like, he's a, um, he's just very outspoken about how he feels about things. And he said, he's like, I would have gotten my ass kicked a lot if my father wasn't the foreman. He's like, because they hate, he's like, they saw me as yeah. this little like student who doesn't deserve anything and he's like never mind the awful yeah and my dad likes to joke he's like never mind the fact that i was scrubbing out chemical chemical plants like it wasn't exactly like i (laughs) you know i was had a you know even a silver platter or anything like that but it's just 
the whole thing, I feel like I could talk about it for like hours and hours and Do hours. you think they have like a PTSD from that time? I mean, that's what we would call it today. But I mean, there are students yeah. that are still talking about this, you know, 50th anniversary is right. going to be a zoo there at Kent. Yeah. I don't know if your parents are going to go. They're going, yeah. It's, yeah, I'm supposed to be there too. So oh, I, I'd love to meet them. But uh, at any rate. I don't know that they have PTSD so much because they were, I know I that they, I know that they heard the gunshots, but they didn't actually see and they were Thank when they goodness. were walking back from class. Yeah, it's. Um, I think. And you're here because that's they what, didn't go there. I told someone else I mean, that really? actually. I did a library event earlier this week where it was near Kent actually, and I was talking about books coming out in 2020 that I should read. And I recommended yours. I was like, "You guys need to read this." And I told them about that. And a woman who was there, she asked me. She's like, "Were your parents at Kent State?" I was like, "Yes." And she's like, "Me too." And she joked me. Was like, "Were they in the rally?" I was like, "No." And she was in the rally apparently and she jokingly said she's like i mean they should have been and i was and i I looked at her i was like i'm glad they weren't because i'm here i don't know that i would have been but that's right i know it's just um i guess like to kind of put a bow on it like what do you see parallels between what happened then and what's going on now in our country and that's part of what i wanted to write kent state for because and that's how i wrap the book up too Mm -hmm. is the whole idea of um then versus now no matter what's going on in the world politically, uh-huh. it's just the fact that we do have guaranteed by our U.S. Constitution First Amendment rights to speech and assembly and to petition, all these rights that those kids had violated uh-huh. on that weekend yeah. and that we still are doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're still violating today. Uh-huh. However, we're rising up. Mm-hmm. And so what I see today is like the kids from Parkland and the kids that are um, very getting very very um, active politically. Mm-hmm. You know, it echoes the '60s to me and how politically active we were in the '60s, wanting to end the war, raising the voting age, or lowering the voting age to 18, mm-hmm. and getting that war out of our lives. You know, I think that Kent State was crucial mm-hmm. in getting the war to end. Yeah. But today, I see those First Amendment rights still eroding, and kids need to stand up for them. We all need to stand up for them because if we can't be heard. Mm-hmm then how do we change anything? Yeah. So I see it that way. Absolutely. Um, we end our podcast on a much light, much more lighthearted <laughs> note. Uh, we have nine questions that we like to ask every author. We oh call, my God. call them the nerd nine. They're very easy. I promise. I promise. Okay. Um, so the, the first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? Mm. Or are currently reading, I will also accept. The last book I finished reading... I'm trying to think because there's so many of them and um, Uh I want to name one that I absolutely well I love them all because if I don't love them I'm reading The Dutch House right now by Ann Patchett yeah and I'm absolutely loving it and before that I read Commonwealth okay yeah and I just I love I say you're on an Ann Patchett (laughs) kick there I'm on an Ann Patchett kick yeah Uh, do you have a favorite place to read um, I'm listening a lot now. Mm-hmm. And you know, I can't just sit in my chair and listen. Right. So I use audiobooks and overdrive whenever I'm on the way somewhere. Yeah. Or when I'm uh, having to sit somewhere and wait. Mm-hmm. I, that's, and basically, that's how I love to read. Yeah. So, and, and mainly because I'm listening so much. If I'm actually get, if I've got my actual physical book in my hand, then I'm often at my green chair that I love to write in. Do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? Charlotte's Web 
Oh, that's a really good one. It was just, Love it was song. perfect. And I still think it's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's really good. Uh, what is one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? I want to go to France. I wanted to go to France with, all my life. Um, mm-hmm. I took 10 years of French. And I was multi-fluent in French. I could never tell you this now, but you know, I can never speak it now. Mm-hmm. But I was going to go to France my junior year of college, and I was going to be an interpreter at the UN after mm-hmm. I'd gone to the Sorbonne, and I never made it, so I want to go there. There you go. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Mm, Halloween was always my favorite holiday. I have four kids, and we did it up big long before Halloween was commercialized yeah so I still love Halloween but I don't do anything for it anymore because it's sort of gone over the top that's fair uh, are you a coffee person or a tea person De- definitely coffee <laughs> lots of it <laughs> most writers say that uh, cats or dogs oh cats I have a cat a cat named Clementine that's wonderful uh, do you have a favorite food bacon Ooh, that's a good one. no one's ever said that and dark fun. chocolate and then, Those are food groups. Absolutely. Oh, dark chocolate for sure. <laughs> so I'm a vegetarian, so I don't do the bacon part, but I can appreciate it. Um, I'm, sub- I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> my wife does this. She's like, she does not so much anymore, but she said, she's like, I'm a vegetarian, but like we would be sitting at a brunch. Yeah. She'd be like, can I get a side of bacon? Yes. And uh, look at her cross-eyed. That's like, exactly what I do. Um, <laughs> That's why it's a favorite, because I don't have it very that often. often. Yeah. And then uh, last one of these, if you could have dinner uh, with anybody alive or dead, who would you pick? Eudora Welty. Wow, you had that one just waiting right there. I don't know. It just has always been somebody of it. I've read everything she's written, and she's. Yeah. I read. I reread Delta Wedding every single year and mm-hmm. learn something from it every time. She's an amazement. It's amazing. Okay, so last question for you: What do you hope readers take away from reading Kent State? You know what I want readers to do, and and I have no control over this, mm-hmm. um, but it's my hope that they'll read this as either, you could read it as reader's theater, you could read it in class, you could read it solo, you can put on a play with these voices in this structure, but whatever you do with it, I want you to get active. I want you to vote. I want you to protest if that's what your your flavor is. I want you to get out and change the world because that's what we do. You know, human beings have that choice. No one else on the planet has the choice to be able to get out there and make things better. Well, the book is amazing. It's so important, obviously, as I said, very close to home for me, obviously. Yeah, but really. I can't thank you enough for writing it and for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You were the exact right reader for this book. <laughs> Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.